0: Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today we are going to be talking about one of the open theists' best proof texts. And when we're talking about what makes a good proof text and what makes a bad proof text, we need to keep a couple things in mind. Number one, the proof text can't be a random sentence that's out of place in the narrative. It can't be just a fleeting line that could have multiple possibilities. It needs to be part of a larger narrative, and it has to fit in the larger narrative so that it can have context and meaning. You need to be able to understand what is being said and what is happening in context, how it makes sense. It can't be something that might be a metaphor or a hyperbole or, or might just be a fleeting statement with multiple interpretations. It has to be fairly concrete. So example of a really bad proof text is in 1 Samuel 15, where Samuel says to Saul, he says, God is not a man that he should repent. Number one, the context is of God repenting. Number two, the voice actor is Samuel, who could be wrong. Number three, in the text, God says that he repents. And the narrator says God repents. Samuel's statement does not work within the context to be some sort of metaphysical absolute. It doesn't even seem that Samuel is talking about metaphysics when he's talking. It even looks like he's just talking in context that God's not going to repent of that one thing, but God often does repent as he does in that text. So any proof text has to be in a longer narrative, has to make sense, has to have a meaning, and a meaning that without which it, the narrative just wouldn't make sense. Because, you know, if, if, if it's dismissed, it destroys the story. So that makes a pretty solid proof text where it's integral to the story, And without it, the story just falls apart and can't be used. The entire point of the story is defeated. It also helps when there's multiple perspectives on the events that happen. For example, in 1 Samuel, that's a good proof text for God repenting because not only God says he repents, but the narrator says he repents. In Jonah, not only does the narrator say that God repents, but Jonah quotes Joel and uh, says that God is a God who repents. That's part of his essence. And that fits the story, and that makes sense. So in that way, there's multiple perspectives within the story. There's actors saying the same thing. There's In the Jonah story, even the pagans are saying, yeah, God's going to repent here. And then the narrator says God repents. And then Jonah says God repents. you got multiple perspectives. So multiple people are weighing in on the issue, and they're all in agreement. And, and these, perspectives, these perspectives are not limited to the immediate context. Sometimes throughout the Bible you have authors that look back on events and recount those events. And so that's, that's another perspective. In addition to God, the narrator, and characters, there's future biblical writers that are also recounting the same events. And you have this over and over. You have the flood recounted and, and the text that we're going to talk to tonight. That's several times recounted in the text. And so not only do you look in the text to see what God thinks, what the people think, what the narrator thinks, but then you can look to see what future authors think of that same text. So quickly recounting, context has to be solid. Statements cannot be just fleeting. They have to fit the overall narrative. Multiple perspectives have to work together in a unified way and be consistent. And uh, most importantly, The interpretation has to be integral to the point of the story. All these factors will add up to a good proof text. That doesn't mean you can't make side points about uh, texts that don't quite fit these characteristics. But the more that you do fit these characteristics, the more solid a point you're going to make. So today we're going to be talking about Exodus 32. Now Exodus 32 is an event, and this event takes place on Mount Sinai. Moses, if everyone remembers the story, goes up to meet God on Mount Sinai. And the people down below, they all pile their goods together and they all worship like a false god who did not bring them out of Israel. And Yahweh, God, he looks down on this and he becomes very angry. So let's read the text. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So remember, these are the jewels of the Egyptians. Israel basically plundered Egypt as they left. Egypt was so eager to get rid of Israel that They just gave them all their gold and silver and stuff like that, and Israel took it all. And so this stuff becomes very important in this narrative, because the people are going to fashion from all this jewels that God helped them plunder from Egypt. They're going to fashion a false god, and eventually they're going to have to melt this down, and as retribution, they're going to have to consume it. They're going to have to drink this stuff. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf and they said these are your gods o israel who brought you out of the land of egypt and when aaron saw this he built an altar before it and aaron made a proclamation and said "Tomorrow thou shalt feast to the lord and they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play And the Lord said to Moses, so this is now on Mount Sinai. God is talking to Moses, go down for your people. You notice how he says your people. It's not my people anymore, God. This is showing God's anger that's building up. He says, go down to your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. God is saying, Moses, you're the one who brought these people out of Israel. God is almost disowning these people in this text. Go down for your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt. Have corrupted themselves. So, this is not a Calvinist idea. God is disowning these people. These people are not following him. God is shifting responsibility to Moses, saying Moses is responsible for the people and that the people have corrupted themselves. The text continues They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who you brought out of the land of Egypt. So God is sitting here in amazement. He's wondering how Israel, whom he has just saved, just quickly turned to make false gods. This is not the God of classical theism who foresaw this coming. God is burning in wrath. God is disowning these people. He's disclaiming these people. And this is like a shock to God in this text. And we see that further on as well. The text goes on, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And so God's coming to some realizations about Israel. He's saying these guys just, they don't listen, and they're kind of corrupt and bad. And you get a sense of this in Egypt. Even though God performs the miracles through Aaron and Moses, the people still reject Aaron and Moses, and they throw up barriers, and they oppose God's liberation attempts. And so God's getting a sense that these people who he's trying to save, who he's trying to work with, they're just, they just don't listen. They're stiff-necked. And, and as soon as Moses, their leader, leaves them just for a little bit of time, they turn to false gods, even though they have experienced miracles, the parting of the Red Sea, being fed, stuff like that. And so God says, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. So what goes on in this text now is God's discussing his anger at seeing this new development in Israel. They are now worshiping a false god, that god that who is not Yahweh, and they're giving that false god the glory that belongs to God alone. And so God wants to kill him. He says, leave me alone, Moses. Get away from me. He commands Moses to leave. He says, I want to burn in my wrath, and I want to destroy them now, classical attributes they say that you know God is impassable, God doesn't have any anger or God can't be affected by humans. people can't you know change God in any meaningful sense, but here's God, and he's seen the people, and he's burning in wrath, and he wants Moses to leave because God suspects that Moses might try to temper him. And Moses, according to the text, does try to temper him. The next verse, verse 11, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? So in this text, Moses, who's a speaker and presumably the writer, not only attributes this wrath and anger to God through the words of God, but through the character Moses as well. So if Moses had any conception of classical attributes, of impassibility, of immutability, this is going to be a really odd text because not only is God talking about his anger and his plans to destroy Israel, but Moses believes it as well. And Moses believes that God is burning in wrath. And then Moses tries to temper God's wrath in the text. And this all doesn't make sense if God is impassable and can't be affected by our emotions, or if God was never planning to destroy the people, or if God judges people without any consideration of intermediator prayer, stuff like that. And the last thing that God offers is incredibly interesting in the text. He says, That my wrath may be burned hot against them, so he's going to kill Israel, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So God still wanted to fulfill his promise to Abraham in Genesis, but uh, he can't do that really if uh, all of Israel is dead. And so Moses, though, comes from the line of Abraham. So God's plan B, God is suggesting to Moses that he kills all of Israel and then fulfills his promise to Abraham through Moses' lineage. And this is a contingency playing out in God's mind. God is saying, you know, I had this, this plan, I had this prophecy, and I was going to fulfill it this way. But guess what? Things change. I'm going to kill Israel, and then I'm going to fulfill it through this new way. And here's my plan B. And as we see from the text, this plan B never gets implemented. What we see here is God thinking on his feet. This is God innovating. This is God saying that, you know, even though he might have plans and prophecies, there's multiple ways to fulfill those plans and prophecies contingent on people's actions. All of these ideas that are being expressed in this specific text are not classical ideas of future total omniscience of all events that will ever happen. No, this is God responding dynamically to events as they happen. God has seen the people corrupt themselves and is shocked. And this is unimaginable in God's mind that his people would so fast turn against him And then he wants to destroy them, whereas just before, like months before, he was liberating them from Egypt. So in the text, we have Moses respond, and Moses is writing, and Moses is speaking, and Moses believes God. Moses believes God is burning in wrath. Moses believes God, that God wants to kill Israel. Moses is not seeing this as some sort of, you know, test, or God is just kind of, playing the waters, testing the waters, trying to get Moses to intervene. Moses is very serious about what God says. And Moses implores God, the text says, he says, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with such great power and a mighty hand? So Moses, what he's doing here is he's starting some arguments, and these arguments are meant to subside God's anger and subside God's wrath And you get a sense that he thinks God responds dynamically. And so this kind of negates any future omniscience on God's part because if God knew that Moses would be tempering like this, God would have already been tempered. But Moses doesn't believe in these classical attributes. God watches things happen and responds in real time without future knowledge. So Moses sets up a series of arguments. He says... Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, he did bring them out and kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? He says, turn from your burning anger and relent of this disaster against your people. So this argument here, he's saying that the Egyptians, who God just liberated Israel from Egypt, if God were to just kill Israel, the Egyptians would find all the bodies or the news would get to the Egyptians and the Egyptians would be like, look at this death cult. You know, these guys get liberated from us, and then they all just go into the wilderness, and then their God just kills them all. That's terrible. That's a terrible death cult. You know, it would be like the equivalent of like a Haley Comet cult where all the people get together, and they all just commit suicide like a Jim Jones type of thing. And Moses is saying to God that, you know, that's going to look so terrible on you and your people and everything you're trying to do. And so, does Moses think that God necessarily has this argument in mind? Moses is under the impression that God is burning in wrath. And the wrath, you know, just how emotions kind of, you know, sometimes you act with emotions. You know, if someone's breaking into your house, you don't stop to counsel people in your house. You just just act. You get angry or you get intimidated. You get adrenaline and you just move and act on the situation. And that's what happens with emotions. That's what people do. And so Moses is acting as an intermediary, and he's trying to calm God down and say, let's think about this before you do anything rash. So his next argument is about God's promises to Abraham. In verse 13 he says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel your servants, whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, And all this land that I promised, I will give you to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And so, remember God is saying, your people has gone and done this, your people corrupted themselves. Moses is turning this on its head. He says, you know, these are your people, God. You swore by yourself. This is a promise you made, you know, swearing, because there's no other greater thing than yourself to swear on. You're swearing by yourself to give these things to Abraham. So, you know, you owe these people a little bit more than just trying to kill them and work through me to build a new people. These are your people, God. Let's not just kill them. See, Moses here is building a multi-tiered argument. He's giving several reasons why God should not kill Israel because he is legitimately pleading for Israel to try to sway God doing what God plans to do. Moses has no conception that God foreknew all these events are going to happen and all the arguments God's going to make and that uh, God would be tempered by Moses. He's, He's not under that impression. He's under the impression that he needs to build a solid defense to sway God's mind. The next verse is the narrator and the narrator says, And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. And the word relented is the standard word for repent, which means that God actually did think that God was going to destroy these people. God said he would do it, and God repented of what he said he would do. God thought he was going to do something, and then did not do it. This is a fulfillment of Jeremiah 18, which says specifically this, that God will think to do something and then not do it. But in this case, it's not because the people repented. It's because Moses is offering rational arguments. It's not for anything the people did. The people definitely deserve death, but there's an intermediary. There's Moses giving solid arguments, and God values Moses' opinion. And that's one of the reasons God originally tries to send Moses away, because he doesn't want Moses trying to convince him to spare the people. So the text moves on and Moses comes down from Mount Sinai after God repents of destroying the people, and Moses sees the situation going on and Moses starts burning hot in wrath, and now it's Moses' turn for vengeance and he gets all the Levites together and then they go and they kill all the evil people. They just it's a mass slaughter. So after this Moses again returns to God and he says, you know, please God forgive this sin, it's a terrible sin. And uh, if you're not going to forgive their sins, you might as well kill me, uh, too, because, you know, I don't want to go on with Israel being destroyed, and I'm not very interested in this plan to make a new nation through me. So forgive this people, and please let us live on. God's response to this is, Whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Some scholars say that, you know, these are multiple stories, and they're merged, because there's some contradictory elements between God saying he repents of destroying all the people, and God punishing some people. But really, it does look like in Exodus 32, originally God just planned on a mass genocide. Women, children, men, and just restarting through Moses and Moses' family. But this later punishment, this is uh, an afterthought, a punishment of very specific individuals. And this is even after Moses takes it upon himself to do some unilateral punishment, So this entire passage we see a lot of ideas that are not conducive to classical ideas of omniscience that God knows all future events. You know, just the way that God sees things unfold and reacts to those things, and how God's temper flares, and how God's temper is subsided, and how Moses believes that God rationally thinks about things, and how... Moses offers tiered arguments to convince God to repent and how the narrator in the text says that God does repent. All of these things lead us to believe that God really was going to destroy Israel. Uh, This was an unplanned event. This was an event in a moment of anger that Moses was able to unilaterally intermediate on behalf of Israel without their repentance and get God to change his mind. And so, Moses, if Moses wasn't there, if Moses had decided to leave, God would have destroyed Israel. And also, if Moses would have given bad arguments, arguments that weren't very convincing, God would have destroyed Israel. And that in itself defeats all of Calvinistic or classical theology omniscience, that God knows the future. Because... Those arguments would have been foreknown in God's mind, so if we see the text focusing on these arguments as actually being effective in swaying God's reasoning, this doesn't mean that God never ever didn't ever think about these arguments, but just that they're being suggested by Moses might give them a higher value than before. so it's not necessary that God never ever thought about these arguments, but the fact is that these arguments are being presented and then prioritized by God in his mind, and prioritized over God's wrath in God's decision-making process. So how do those who believe in future total omniscience treat this text? The standard Calvinist way is to appeal to anthropomorphisms. They say, you know, the text is written for comprehension of the people reading. You know, that's just really dismissive of the text. It's dismissive of the actions of that are presented in the text. You know, did God take those actions? Did God have a conversation with Moses? Did that actually happen? Did the narrator believe that happened? Was the narrator trying to communicate to Israel that it happened? Did Moses in the text, what did Moses in the text think about God? And really the approach that spiritualizes these things and says, you know, it's just for, you know, lower understandings, people who don't really understand God. It's really dismissive of the text, and it really just destroys the entire narrative. The narrative's just then pointless. But the Bible's not written like that. The Bible is advocacy, and it's always advocacy against the false gods. You even see that in the text. You know, God is competing with this false god. And so, you know, what makes one god true and one god false? The text presents us who Yahweh is, and that's the point of the text. It's not this fake god that's constructed. It's this god who can burn in wrath, who could destroy, who can be prevailed upon, who's rational, you know, and who Moses could actually dialogue with. That's the point of the text. And that's the point that the narrator is trying to give to the audience. And to dismiss all of that, that's not biblical theology. Another common objection or another common interpretation is God is just really throwing stuff out there because he knows that Moses was going to intercede on behalf of Israel. And it's all a big test that God is building as a facade to get Moses to act in a certain way. This view is likewise dismissive of the text because the text is all about God versus false gods and how the true God acts and behaves versus the false God. And there's no evidence in the text that God is trying to build a facade for Moses to intervene, and all this stuff was foreknown. The text describes God as burning in wrath and wanting to destroy Israel and repenting. And so to try to take that and make that about some sort of point about Moses' prayer, working on God, where as future omniscience of all events is not only foreign to the text, that would kind of negate the entire reason of intercessory prayer, which is to change events that otherwise would be. But here's the kicker, and this is why this proof text is a great proof text for open theism, is because this text is not stand-alone. This text is a very important event in Israel's history. So not only is it described here, it is described several times in future texts, and we get a sense of how future authors viewed this event, and guess what? It's never in this dismissive manner that the people who believe in omniscience, what they bring to the text. So in Deuteronomy 9, we have Moses, and Moses is recounting the events. And so Moses is speaking in the text. So Moses is writing this text, and Moses is speaking in this text. And this text is a remembrance of the Exodus 32 event. And he says, Furthermore, the Lord spoke to me, saying, I have seen this people. Indeed, they are stiff-necked people. Let me alone, that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under the heaven i will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they and then in verse 19 it says for i was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the lord was angry with you to destroy you but the lord listened to me at that time also and the lord was very angry with aaron and would have had destroyed him so i prayed for aaron also at the same time so when moses recounts this event god is angry this anger is real god would have destroyed israel god would have destroyed aaron and the only thing that stopped him was Moses being there. The God listened to him. So Moses made his arguments, and God listened to those arguments. But this text is very important. So future authors who recount this text are not just limited to Moses himself. In Psalms 106, 23, it recounts this text. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. So God said that he would destroy Israel. Had not Moses... His chosen one stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. So in Psalms 106.23, God really did want to destroy Israel. God really did have wrath. Moses really did turn away God's wrath. God's reacting in the moment. It's not like God eternally foreknew this wrath and foreknew that Moses would stand in the breach and turn away his wrath. No, God responds in the moment and is dynamic. So next, we flip to Ezekiel 20. But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not all cast away the abominations which were before my eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said to them, I will pour all my fury on them, and I will fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. So God's saying he's going to kill them. He's going to kill all of Israel. But Then the text goes on and says, But I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whom sight I had made myself known to them, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So recount Moses' arguments in Exodus 32. One of the arguments was that if God would just kill Israel, Israel would be viewed as a death cult, Yahweh would be viewed as a death cult that just kills his people, and all the pagans would look negatively on Yahweh's name. And so God says, this argument really appealed to me. It wasn't because Israel was repentant that I saved them. It was because of this argument that Moses made. That's why I repented. It was for my own sake. It wasn't for their sake. I changed for me. And this negates any concept of immutability. The original text negates the concept, and looking back on the text negates this concept. God is changing. And it's not because of man. It's not a relational change to man. It's God's changing for his own sake. And God is, cares about his image. God cares about his image to pagan nations. The next reference is a little bit more veiled. It comes in Jeremiah fifteen one, And it says, Then the Lord said to me, and the Lord's talking to Jeremiah, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable towards these people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. So God is remembering Moses' role in tempering his wrath. God remembers his relationship with Moses, and how Moses really did sway God's actions. And the point that God is communicating to Jeremiah in this text is, you know, sometimes there's these people in history who, because of their relationship to me, I will change my mind, I will do kind of what they say, I'll listen to their arguments a little bit more thoroughly, but sometimes the people get like so wicked that I'm just gonna destroy them and you know these people can't temper me they can't slow me down and I won't even consider their arguments but people like Moses throughout history they have been able to reach and sway God and make him do what he otherwise would not have done. So in all these texts when people are recounting the events of Exodus 32 it's never in this weird Calvinist sense where God is just testing and playing with Moses it's always Moses convinced God to not kill Israel, and how Moses did that was through arguments that made sense how God is going to be, you know, profaning his name among the Gentiles. God listened to those arguments, and God changed his actions based on those arguments. And it wasn't a predestined sense where God always knew he was going to change. It was God changing, and God changing for his own sake. The really funny thing is that these events that are described in Exodus 32, they happen again in Numbers 14, the exact same events. Uh, Israel makes God really mad. God wants to destroy Israel again. And Moses intervenes a second time in the same manner and with the same arguments. And God really does change again. God really did want to destroy them again. And Moses really does stand in the gap again and convince God again not to destroy Israel. So, this wasn't like a one time thing. So, in Exodus 32, you got a really solid proof text for open theism. Without the open theism element in the Exodus 32 narrative, the narrative just doesn't make sense. It's a long narrative, it's a detailed narrative, it goes through various motivations of the characters. You got characters speaking, you got God speaking, you got the narrator speaking, and then you got future authors looking back at this text, and it's all in this unified sense. And it's all in this unified sense against omniscience against these negative attributes of God, where God foreknows everything in the future, that God is immutable and passable, and no one could reach God emotionally. No, it's all in this sense where God is in the here and now, and God reacts. And sometimes people can change God's actions. And sometimes God reacts not for people's sake, but for his own sake. This is a change intrinsic to God, not based on other people. So the author of Exodus 32, the author of Psalms 106, the author of Deuteronomy, the author of Ezekiel, none of these guys believed in these Calvinist attributes of God. They all believed God was dynamic, that God is the God of open theism, that God is relational, that God could change, and God acts in the here and now. And people could really affect God, and God won't do what he otherwise would have done, what he had planned to do. So we are about out of time for this podcast. If you have comments or questions, you could post that on our God is Open webpage or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening.